0: Welcome to Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into
1: critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied North America.
2: This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire, and may the bridges we burn together light our way.
1: Part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. ChannelZero.com
2: Okay, hello everybody. So happy to be on the mic today for our Queering MMIWG2ST show. Um, so before we get started, we're actually going to give y'all an um, uh, update on what's happening out there in the front lines. So we got a submission from... Libres Las Tres, and they're um, working on a campaign to free the political prisoners Carla, Magda, and Arlie, and they are um, unjustly detained right now in Mexico City for um, ev- during the eviction of the Cuba Refuge Squad, so um, they were campaigning against uh, femicide, the femicide that happened and, um, you know, well, really all across um, the globe, but um, particularly in what's happening um, you know, in so-called Mexico so that leads pretty well into our conversation today about um, MMIWG2ST. Um, so the government, there is repressing and silen- silencing social workers and activists who are fighting against femicide and working really closely with families. Uh, you can follow uh, what they're up to and um, give that support to them on their Instagram. And their Instagram handle is at um, Libres Las and then a three. So that's L-I-B-R-E-S-L-A-S three. Okay, so like we said, um, today's show topic is going to be on um, MMIWG2ST, and that stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, Two-Spirit, and Trans Folks. So every Indigenous person that I've ever met has been impacted by this movement, and in, um, in conversations around a critical analysis of what's going on in this movement, there is um, a hyper focus and of um, cis women um, in this movement, and there have been attempts made to include our queer relatives. Hence, you know, the addition of the um, two spirit and trans abbreviations in the hashtag. Uh, and of course, that was an attempt to raise awareness and include us queers in the in the movement. But as we've seen, the cisnormativity still dominates the narratives around the issue. And so, with me today, we have Damien, Simona, and Blue uh, to talk about this issue as well as um, you know give some experiences and some analysis about uh, why it is that cis-heteronormativity and cis-heteropatriarchal violence um, influences the erasure of queers uh, in this movement. So, if you all want to um, give a brief introduction, um, as well as provide your pronouns, then we can go ahead and get started in our conversation. (laughs) Dos
3: na, Um, Hello, I wanted to greet myself in my native tongue. My name is Bluebird, and I am Northern Arapaho. Um, I'm a two-spirited individual, and my pronouns, I mean, I don't really have a preference, so she, he, they are all fine.
4: Um, Hello, I'm Simona Berica. My people are the Nakota, Dakota, and Mono. Red Bottom Clan, and my pronouns are she, her, they, them.
1: Yatay, uh, my name is Demian Dinat-Yashe. I am a 30, mid, late 30s <laughs> non-binary queer person. Um, hair is uh, I guess just above my nipple. Um, I'm wearing a black shirt um, I have dark brown hair, I'm wearing a backwards baseball cap. I have on some red earrings that were made by an indigenous artist up in Canada. I'm sitting in the hotel room, currently coming from, to you from Lenapehoking, um, more commonly referred to, the specific area of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I am from the Diné tribe with some Zuni ancestry. And my clans are Nashtaje, Tabahe, and Tordechitni. And I live in Portland, Oregon, which is the ancestral homelands to various indigenous tribes, but was also, like most indigenous homelands, you know, very rich trading grounds between various indigenous tribes.
2: And, of course, my name is Bon, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm going to follow Demian's lead and give y'all a verbal description of uh, what I look like and where I am. Um, So, well, I'm Cocoa paw and German, so I identify as native and white. And I'm sitting in um, my office right now. There's some plants behind me as well as a bookshelf. Um, with some of my favorite manga, and I have um, long, black, wavy hair, and, of course, my Cocoa Paw bangs. (laughs) That's to protect us from the sun, our little foreheads from getting burned. I have um, several tattoos on my arms. I have um, my septum pierced, and there is a black uh, nose ring in it, Um, and my pronouns are they, them. Um, Yeah, so actually Blue and uh, Simona, why don't you all um, give a verbal description of what's happened on video there for folks who um, may have different um, seeing abilities. I just want to
4: acknowledge that that was amazing. Thank you. I'm going to definitely include that more often in anything I do. Thank you for that. Um, Behind me, well, there's a lot of paintings, my favorite is the drum. (laughs) <laughs> the little one's drum with the bear print on it. Um, Afro-Indigenous curly hair, dentilium, big, big anti-energy earrings, <laughs> and, and necklace sitting on a couch. I am
3: currently in transit back to the Wind River Reservation where I reside with my tribe and also the Eastern Shoshone relatives. Um, I'm currently on my homelands in Colorado. And so that feels really good to like anchor into uh, my womb space and have this conversation. And yeah, I'm here in a black and white bandana top. It's like my second time wearing it, but feeling good about it. And this, wearing this sacred, beautiful necklace uh, made out of seeds from the Amazon and it was gifted to me by a good relative who I pray with and I'm wearing some very beautiful like abalone circle star you know like dark and light blue and white earrings that my uh, sibling had got for me for my birthday with some dentillion on the bottom and I'm rocking that like six months after morning haircut you know <laughs> it was up to like my ears and it's grown about a good six inches in the last six
2: months so nice
3: I got also got some plants with me
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah I gotta have those more than human relatives with us yes hmm well, awesome. I just feel like I am in a queer heaven today where I get to be with these amazing people and talk about um, an issue that I really, really, really care about and we all really, really care about. Um, so to begin, I guess I wanted to just provide you know, a brief background in history into the conversation around G 2st because it's an issue that I think has garnered a lot of attention um, in recent years, but people really need to know that, you know, rape and murder have always been used as mechanisms of control um, by colonizers, settlers, and now, unfortunately, you know, our assimilated um, kin, or I don't even, maybe we can get into that um, later, but Essentially, we were, you know, folks were violently forced into submission um, by European contact, and that has really led to the diminishment of our autonomy and the sovereignty of our lands, and so, you know, um, this is something that we've been talking about in our kitchens and our communities and with our relatives for a long, long time, and as we started to mobilize around the issue on a larger scale and in those grassroots efforts um, to combat this horrifying violence the movement you know like I said in the last several decades has garnered more and more attention and because of that um, you know the nonprofit industrial complex has saw an opportunity to co-opt our grassroots efforts and movements and kind of monetize um, this violence that we experience. And then of course there are other governmental entities um, that have coerced, um, you know, people who started out on those grassroots efforts um, into their control to maintain control of our autonomy. And so within that specifically and during this conversation, we really want to focus on how queers experience um, erasure within the movement and how rape culture perpetuates our struggles and really what that co-optation of our movement by the NPIC, which is the nonprofit industrial complex, um, has done to the movement and our communities and our relatives. Um, I think before we begin, it would be helpful to maybe um define some basic terms. So, um, I think that maybe one that people hear and maybe kind of have an idea about, but um I think hearing you know, from us what we think cisnormativity is would be really helpful. Um, So is there anybody who would want to, um, define that for our listeners and even in the context of um, the struggle that we're talking about today?
1: Um, I can take a a crack at it. Um, So the term cis uh, cis, cisgendered um, is a term that refers to uh, people who identify with the colonial gender that they were assigned at birth um so a cis female and cis male you know they you know were assigned male or female at birth and throughout their entire lives they've chosen to um remain identified as such um within that you know i think there's a larger breakdown of how cis sexuality like functions that oftentimes doesn't get talked about and, um, at least, you know, outside of indigenous communities, um, or trans non-binary communities, queer communities as well, um, is how gender is a colonial construct and, you know, science as well, you know, plays into that, especially when it comes to gender assignment. And, um, so that's kind of how I like to, you know, kind of think about it. Um, that's how I like to also be become critical of it. Um, cisnormativity uh, then applies to the ways that normative culture um, prefers cisgendered individuals, um, and so like the term, you know, heteronormativity, which applies to you know heterosexual communities who have a preference as well in mainstream um, Western society um cisgendered individuals as we see you know have a stronger preference um there is a larger um wealth of access and privileges that are afforded to cisgendered individuals um oftentimes you know they um are still working underneath the the constructs and oppression of heteropatriarchy um and so you know i it's obviously a very complex issue but it becomes um violent and uh harmful when we're you know when when non-binary trans two-spirit individuals are you know facing um harassment death violence um and presently you know uh overwhelming and disgusting amount of colonial legislation against our bodies and livelihood. Um, But that's, you know, I I think, you know, with taking all that into consideration, um, it entirely has ties to the issue at hand. Um, You know, within the larger colonial construct as well, some of the first people who were assaulted, violated, and murdered uh, were our, what would presently be known as, you know, trans non-binary individuals um, by early colonizers. And uh, yeah, so I, if anyone wants to add on top of that, feel free.
2: I think that's a pretty good definition to start. And I think in answering, um, you know, some of the prompts that we have today, we can further elaborate um, and then I think within that, and in, in giving a basic definition of what rape culture is, is inherently tied to cis-normativity and, um, you know, the patriarchy. So rape culture is basically, um, you know, just very briefly, the dominant society's normalization of violence. Um, in particular, against you know women and queer folks, and um, it basically um, inc- you know rape people who perpetuate rape culture essentially sign on to that um, that narrative that people are available. Um, for entitlement and um it's because of cis normativity rape culture says that it's we're we're like socialized to um you know not be we're like totally desensitized towards the violences that we're talking about today um and I think there's a very specific way in which that influences um, being a queer person and that normalization of, of violence as well. Um, and so I think, you know, again, in our, throughout our conversation, I think it'll become clear as to what we're talking about, especially later on when I give um, some of the submissions for the call-outs that we received um, for the podcast today. And then, um, another thing that we could, um, just briefly define is, um, co-optation. So what does, what does that mean? When an organization, organization
3: or a group, um, takes on, like, the work that's being done and says that they're doing the work, but, like essentially is like capitalizing off of it and exploiting um, the like grassroots uh, vision of the work, or at least like that's how I see
2: it.-hmm. Yeah, and I think that lends in really nicely to the next thing. Um, just to give a, a quick uh, brief definition of the nonprofit industrial complex. That's a really, I don't know how that could really be briefly defined, but if anyone wants to try, it might be helpful just for folks to have that foundation uh, before we start getting really into our clause out analysis.
3: Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar to what I just communicated, but like on a more uh, global scale um, or like a huger scale where these organizations are basically, like, funneling in all of this money to support this thing, and so people think that, like, this work is being done. Meanwhile, they are, in a way, um, supporting the thing that they say they're not, like, or that they're, like, working against, in a short explanation.
4: Yeah, actually... Uh- I kind of see it as uh, the theft and censoring of our knowledge, of our wisdom, um, of our history, and used for their own personal gain agenda.
2: Yeah, another thing it does is it totally strips, um, you know, our movements from the autonomy of being tied to any colonial entity, right? Because nonprofits, by and large, get their funding from the government through grants. Um, And even if they are um, private grants, they're still tied to someone else's agenda. And so it kind of has this, um, you know, this effect on grassroots movements that takes away um, what it is that we're doing um, on the ground and kind of almost legalizes it in a way. And we know that. Um, the legal system is was created and upholds colonial mechanisms of oppression and violence against, um, you know, particularly black and indigenous folks. Um, so with that, I'm super excited to get into um, the conversation. I hope that kind of orientation with some of those words, Um, based on feedback from podcast listeners, like helps to kind of follow along our conversations. Um, So thank you to those who provided that feedback um, that it would be helpful to kind of give some of those definitions from our perspective as opposed to, you know, whatever comes up on Urban Dictionary or Google or what have you. Um, So... I think maybe a good place to start for folks is kind of like, you know, why we're even here in the first place. Um, I think all of us in some way has probably experienced um, what it feels like to just live in a cis normative society, but then also what that, what happens when, you know, our movements are indigenous struggles um then perpetuate that erasure of a queer identity Um, and like we said before um the general movement um which is typically just um you know considered the mmiw movement so missing and murdered indigenous women's movement um you know they've made some small and subtle gestures to include us, uh, but I'm wondering in y'all's experience, um, how has how have queers um, experienced erasure, and what what has that looked like for me? And something that like I've experienced personally
3: um, by leaders in my community who, yeah, are actively leading. Um, you know, the MMIW movement. Um, They speak and use only statistics and experiences um, based on the woman's identity, Um, while queer and trans and two-spirit relatives are not being like monitored, included, or thought about at all. Um, And then in the cases where some of our relatives are being misgendered when they're trying to be located, um, also when they're like finding justice for them and it doesn't, like, tell the full narrative of what's happening through the queer lens.
2: hmm And that ties in really well with, um, you know, what happens when our, our movements are co-opted by the nonprofit industrial complex, because it, it really is dehumanizing um, to everybody who, um, you know, is part of those statistics. But then It's even more so when, you know, a person who is of um, a non-binary identity just gets shoved into one of those um, categories of being a man or a woman, and so we can also thank the MPIC for that.
4: Uh, What I've experienced in um, some of those spaces is when I, uh, you know, I call out some of the behavior, some of the problematic things being said, and it's like, oh, you're queer. And it's an immediate sexualization because I'm, I'm presenting mm. and it's an immediate like it's a turn-on. It's just you have to battle that too.
2: hmm hmm
1: Yeah, one way that um I've I mean I, I think another space that's um important to talk about is social media um and its influence on MMIW and indigenous communities and indigenous identities, Um, you know, because I have for the last few years facilitated a group called rise, which stands for radical indigenous survivance and empowerment. And we have a Instagram um, at rise indigenous. And so, you know, oftentimes we'll focus on indigenous, queer, trans, non-binary and two spirit communities. Uh, We also had, like, a very large, like, indigenous feminist and matriarchal sort of um, support system as well. But, you know, once we started to embrace more of, embrace, amplify, and empower, you know, indigenous, queer, trans, non-binary, and two-spirit communities, then we started to, like, get more opposition Mm. um, from other indigenous tribes. And it's usually indigenous, cis, heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. Um, who will chime in and say, this is, y'all are crazy. Like, you know, in like indigenous gender, um, transgender identities and non-binary or gender variant identities did not exist prior to colonization. Like, there's no actual proof of that. Like, what are you talking about? That's, you know, that, that didn't exist. And so it completely just disregards the fact that, you know, there are many indigenous tribes that have various gender systems and sexual identities that are even like for, for the Diné people. Cause I'm, I, you know, I can speak on behalf of the Diné people, you know, it's written like into our creation stories. Um, and so um the ways that gender has been constructed um, is ancestral, you know, it, it, has been going on that way for centuries prior to colonization. Um, So that's one way that, you know, our identities are being erased through social media. But, you know, there was a time back a few years ago um, when I wouldn't say that we were the only indigenous, um, uh, subversive indigenous, like, (laughs) space that existed on social media. But um, it was interesting to see the ways that some of these larger indigenous accounts that are, you know, presently um, taking up a lot of space, the ways that initially they were not inclusive of indigenous queer, trans, or non-binary people. Um, it wasn't until a lot of the people were being called out, and that you know a lot of this. Um, support started to to take place it started to happen um so you see some like inclusion happening out there but i also like question you know the the overall um investment that these spaces have with indigenous queer trans non-binary communities Um, i think for a lot of people's like it's very trending it's very trendy and so in order for them to survive as a space, in order for them to maintain the power that they have through social capital, it becomes their best in their best interest to take on a lot of the issues that are happening within our communities. But again, this is where something like co-optation and appropriation also comes into play. Um, because through that, they're also inherently... Um, co-opting and appropriating a lot of our issues in order to give themselves um, in order to enhance our social capital in order to move them up the ladder um, but again a lot of these spaces are not run by indigenous queer trans or non-binary individuals. Um, a lot of these spaces are not run by queer individuals. Um, so I think that's you know that's something that is in in, in the present space that we live in through having to deal with like simulated um alternative realities that exist within like colonial apps and um social media spaces uh that's another that's another place that um you know the that's another place where the battlefield or the battleground is like um confusing because you see a lot of these things being posted create an awareness about, like, two-spirited peoples. Um, but it's, it's still questionable to a certain degree.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the social media element um, because that is primarily the place in which um, this particular struggle um, has any um, platform. And last year, I remember bunch of, you know, kin and relative had posted something, um, on May 5th, uh, to highlight and raise awareness about, um, MMIWG2ST, and they were all censored. I don't know if anyone else remembers that happening. Um, yeah, I see heads nodding. Um, and that's a really, um, you know, I think, pertinent and relevant point to bring up um, because not only, you know, since the struggle is already, uh, you know, dominated by um, particularly like CIS-centric narratives, it further um, creates, you know, conflict for conflict and, Um, erasure for queers, um, because if cis people can't even get the platform and, um, you know, the, the traction for a movement, then where, you know, where does that really leave us in, in the conversations? Um, and, and, in, in some ways, I think there's such a huge, um, desensitization of, um, the experience of being, uh, like a queer person that it's just even more, um, you know, it's even more violent, um, to censor our, our movements and through, you know, these, um, these platforms are just basically colonial perpetu uh, colonialism perpetuating itself right um and so i think that with that being said um you know one thing that i think would be good to talk about too is how specifically um cisnormativity and rape culture influence, um, the experience of being queer and at risk, uh, for being, um, murdered or going missing. Um, so I think that, that ties into, you know, um, some of what we offered earlier in the conversation about what cisnormativity and rape culture are, but I'm curious, um, To help listeners understand what the um, intersectionality of being both indigenous and queer means for us. um, And, and, you know, both the struggle of just living our everyday lives and then also being um, a queer person who, um, you know, walks about the the earth, the planet, um, the lands, knowing that we're at such a higher risk for experiencing um, these specific types of violences.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could, you know, I, I think, um, especially with a lot of the legislation that is being posed, you know, I start to think about being young, growing up in a border town. I grew up in Gallup, New Mexico. Um, You know, sexuality in the 90s was like, I don't, scary as fuck. Especially we were in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Um, You know, I was fearful that even just like identifying as um, a queer person back then would just inherently um, expose me to this. Not through any even like sexual or human contact, Um, but that's the way it felt, you know, it felt that even if, if, um, you identified as this, you were, you were just, um, it was just assumed that, uh, you were dirty, um, you were defiled, uh, there was no respect whatsoever for queer people. Um, and it's, it it still feels that way today. Um, I was, you know. Fortunately enough, I had like, you know, queer community in Gallup. I found, you know, like-minded individuals, friends who, you know, I, I still haven't talked to um, who are also queer, who are also native. Um, you know, we all, for the most part, escaped and like fled mm-hmm. Gallup, got out as quickly as we could, but not everyone survives that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where cis normativity comes into play is you know our the forms of like violence um, harassment ridicule belittling that uh, we come into contact with on a daily basis is meant to um, to create situations that um, question our survival um, whether or not we want to survive it leads to youth suicides. It leads to high rates of self harm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think a lot of this legislation is, is actually meant to co- to carry on these colonial traditions, but um, to do so in a way where, through our own self colonization, through our own um, self hate that is like taught to us and indoctrinated into us. Um, that we actually become the ones who um, carry on the missions of the Empire. Um, and it's it's amazing that any of us survive, uh, but that's where this, like, hardcore resilience comes into play. Um, anyway, I hope that's, that's helpful to a certain degree.
3: Yeah, just to piggyback off of that a little bit and... Um, recognize, like, that there's so much shame, um, yeah, like, instilled in us and just, like, our sexuality in general, apart from, yeah, it being so, like, who you like, but, like, the fact that, like, it's a conversation at all, Um, just, like, previous to colonization, you know, each relative played a role that supported themselves and their community regardless of their gender. And so when the missionaries came in and separated the families, they also separated us based on which body parts we had. And so all the boys' hair was cut the same and the girls had a slighter longer haircut, like signifying the difference between us, you know. Uh, the boys had to wear pants and blazers and the girls had to wear blouses and dresses. And on top of all of that, we're actively being fetishized, molested, and silenced. And so, like, these traumas are carried on into each of our communities and families that are affected by the boarding schools. And so, like, yeah, these are things that, like, we as queer people have to deal with, like, on a daily basis, like, from our families, from through our communities, and just, like, all of the trauma that our people have um, experienced. Um it's like our like we've been become dominated by the white man ideology, where like yeah the the lines the gender lines and roles and stereotypes are like really strong, and so when survivors tell our stories, we're met with like a bunch of really insensitive questions um and it feels mm-hmm. like our truths aren't being heard or understood like and held in the way that they need to be. Like, yeah, like like you said, you know, indigenous people are fetishized in general and queer and trans and two spirited people are targeted because the society has hypersexualized us through media and not just like social media but like porn sites and different like you know fantasy fetishization stories and movies and things. So yeah, just wanted to communicate that as well.
4: And i do want to piggyback on that too like um my spirit's very masculine at times and i'm very much a a confrontational person so uh when i as a survivor when i came forward with my story one of the main things that i heard from um, some folk was uh, we have a hard time believing you because you would have stabbed this person you would have done this you would have done that, that they expected me to somehow not go to default freeze, but to go to fight. And since I didn't do that, that made my uh, call-out, you know, a lot legitimate to them. So I struggle with that, too. Like, um, really trying to be more feminine, it's why I'm more femme-presenting to kind of counter how, you know, the other parts of me. And it uh, sucks. Yeah, it really
3: does. And um... Honestly, like, I'm, I feel you in that because I'm, like, the opposite. Like, I was so, like, sexualized as a young person and I was, like, really femme presenting and after, you know, I mean, yeah, not to get too deep into things, it, I felt more comfortable, um, presenting myself in, like, baggier clothing and, like, more, like, mal-presenting just to protect myself in a way and, yeah, I don't know, it it definitely also, like, gets to me sometimes when, like, I do, I want to, like, just dress up and, like, feel good, but also, like, wondering, like, yeah, I don't know, just, like, the constructs and, like, the things in the mind that, like, prevent us from being able to, like, fully express who we are as individuals apart from, like, these gender norms. um,
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that brings up a really interesting point, um, You know, I think in my um, navigation of what my gender is, which is um, that I don't have one, I tried out, (laughs) I think every burgeoning queer has probably gone through this, but I tried the, you know, androgynous, like, tomboy, quote-unquote, presentation. And even that did not protect me from, you know, the catcalling, the stares, the sexualization and, um, you know, the experience of living in a society where rape culture is the dominant mentality. And so I think that um, within, you know, our conversations about that, it's so important to bring up how, um, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us queers... Um, our fluid and how we want to present um, our spirit and present physically and that still is not um, a protection um, towards the risk of, um, you know, experiencing um, what would lead us to go missing or be murdered. And so that's something that we really need to deconstruct on a societal level is this gendering of presentation, you know, clothing, um, our spirits even. Um, And so I think that ties in, you know, again, with the concept of living in a cis-normative society where we might see um, someone who, um, you know, looks feminine and then automatically assume it's a woman, and that's something that I think we really need to um, just abolish from our mentalities um, because, of course, um, the unfortunate reality is that for every, you know, we are all impacted um, by the biases of the colonial institutions of gender and and everything really, and so um, you know, being um, you know, having that experience of continuing to be um, harassed and and targeted um, because of how I looked uh, and that I presented, you know, more queer, I guess, if you will. Um, did not necessarily, um, you know, lead to anything changing. If anything, it made, um, you know, it, it it felt like I was even more like out there, in the open. And then I had this really beautiful experience of, um, you know, realizing that, um, what, how, what, and how I appear. Um, actually has nothing to do with my gender, which is when I realized I didn't have one in the first place. And so that's actually when I, um, in my entire life, and, and currently so, am, you know, presenting the most feminine um, that I ever have in my life because that's what I like. Um, and so, you know, regardless of what I look like, we live in a rape culture and so it's like there's a target on us every time we step out of our homes and so why not just um you know look however the hell i want to um because i know that my my spirit um is is not you know related to any kind of physical presentation that I could possibly manage to present in this world. Um, And so I think that um, in some ways, you know, um, kind of looking outside of, um, you know, our like, looking outside of the boxes that gender has been put into, And then seeing how, you know, now that I kind of do fit into that cis assumed woman identity, um, how as a queer, (laughs) I actually make things really complicated um, and create um, not conflict within me and my spirit, but conflict within uh, the perceptions of other people. And it's very confusing for folks. Um, because they don't understand why a non-binary person would, um, become even more feminine, I guess, um, than they ever had been before. And so those are all things that lead to, I think, um, one, you know, potentially making choices, um, that put them in situations. Where, um, you know, whether, you know, a young queer might be um, running away from their community um, or, um, you know, all these various like things that happen um, when we live in a world that doesn't see us as valid people um, that dehumanizes us. So those are all definitely things that, you know, cisnormativity and and rape culture has contributed uh, to, um, I think, the circumstances in which uh, a queer person would go missing or be murdered. Absolutely. And then I think another, um, you know, important element to this conversation, too, has a lot to do with the Uh, carceral system, because um, you know, in looking at the NPIC's um, you know, approach to this struggle, it really is um, it's really clear that um, you know the people who are leading these nonprofits in in the struggle are really like kind of obsessed with laws and they really believe that um you know there are good laws and there are bad laws and those bad and outdated laws are the reasons why um you know this struggle exists and there is a complete uh, erasure of the root of Uh, The violence, which is the long legacy of colonial oppression of, um, you know, black and indigenous people and specifically black and indigenous queer people. And so when we look at that co-optation of our movement by the NPIC, uh, there's an even further erasure of queers and and then a further maintenance of cisnormativity. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how um, the NPIC is very um, data-driven. And I think it's important to mention that, to me, I think data is essentially a colonial extraction of our experiences of being alive. Um, And... I think within that, um, you know, we, we have, um, this attempt at looking at, um, how we can make things, um, how we can, like, live in a more liberated society, free from the, um, free from the idea of being murdered or going missing. But then we have all of these resources just like, um, you know, getting funneled into these nonprofits that then perpetuate exactly what we've been trying to fight against. And so I think that um, it's really important for people to understand that there is no law or policy <laughs> that I think will ever address the root of colonial oppression and violence. And so I'd love to um, hear what y'all um, think about that and how like how you've seen, you know, nonprofits and the NPIC actually kind of undermine um, the work that we've done to address the MMIW-G2ST struggle? Well, with what you said with data, I
4: mean, that's that was just, like, the main thing. There was no database. And then also, when we do sometimes add the intersectionality of being Indigenous to um, the issues that they're, you know, addressing, it's always, well, remember that one, something else? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like they mm-hmm. never really have a... A place for us, or at least that's how I feel. Um, when I was working in the academic realm or nonprofit realms, it was like we always seemed to get, you know, get pushed aside. Our issues were on the back burner. Or if I bring up um, missing or murdered uh, Indigenous relatives, it would be, um, "Well, this person disappeared, that person," and they would always be non-Indigenous, and they would um, change the topic to something mm-hmm. else besides, you know, the issue that I brought to the table.
3: Mm -hmm. I also feel like while they try to include us in the narrative by like adding the extra letters and numbers and things, you know, it's very similar to like the LGBTQIA2S and it's a little just insensitive because in a way they're still like putting us in a separate group from the woman when we're still a part of that narrative in a way, it's like the feminine energy of things or whatever, and Mm -hmm. yeah, like also feeling like the nonprofits essentially become a huge part of the problem by ignoring the issues like the violence to the land, the drug and alcohol addiction, the intergenerational trauma, like these are things that they don't want to talk about because they're actively engaged in these things. And they believe that playing into the colonial oppression, and having the power to create their own laws and bills, will somehow um, mend centuries of continued genocide. And then they become the face and the voice of the struggle, while not actually experiencing that struggle for themselves. And, yeah, like, you know, this has been echoed a few times, like, for their own career. Um, Mm -hmm. furthering the oppression and the genocide of like all of the people and just like wanting to get into office and like become a politician for, you know, their benefit. Maybe, maybe not so much in like a selfish way because they think it is going to be for the people and like whatever. But I think when you're able to take a step back and understand and like look at the bigger picture, like you wouldn't, I don't know. Personally, I would never want to, like, give in to that because I know that it, it just oppresses us more. Like, when we think that we're in power, we're actually, like, giving our power away.
1: I also just feel like there's no trust. <laughs> the nonprofit industrial complex um, abolishes trust in individuals. Um, they don't trust us to just give us money. You know, a lot of the, organi- I mean, I'm also an artist. Um, I apply for grants. I apply I apply for funding. Um, oftentimes I run into these really amazing opportunities and they're tied or some of the requirements are, you know, you have to have a nonprofit or have a five, uh, w- w- sorry, what's the other one? Um, a fiscal sponsor, you know, and, um, so again, it's like if you really cared about the issues, if you really cared about the work that I'm doing, then just give me the fucking money. Mm-hmm. Like I doesn't need to be a tax write off for like whoever your donor is or anything. Like just give us the money. Like I know what to do with it. It'll go back. It'll go right back into my community. Um so having to deal with like all the bureaucratic hoops that are are at play um is just one added form of like exhaustion that takes time and energy away from like what we're actually trying to do um and that's a, I, yeah that's just one other thing that i have a problem with a nonprofit industrial complex it's like it there's no trust involved in it um And that's where I start to question, like, the legitimacy of their support and advocacy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I have an experience of um, working in nonprofits, um, you know, after I graduated from NAU, um, which was really a survival tactic for me at the time because I aged out of the foster care system and just needed somewhere to go. so I did get my um, you know, Bachelor of Arts degree and then went into the nonprofit sector where I worked um, as a community educator to prevent sexual and domestic violence. And part of uh, that nonprofit was a um, runaway and homeless uh, youth shelter. And I would do groups over at the, um, the youth shelter and actually really loved it. Um, especially as being someone who, you know, just came out of living in shelters and group home settings. Um, Those kids are fucking resilient, but um, they're amazing. But there was, um, you know, so the youth shelter was um, separated by halls, you know, the men's hall and the girls' hall. And we had a um, trans um, woman individual who needed shelter. And um, because of the confines of the grants that uh, they um, had, they were obliged to house the um, trans woman in the men's hall or the boys' hall um which is absolutely horrifying um imagine running away from and being homeless you know because of um you know being um what i would likely assume was in a violent familial situation <clears throat> seeking shelter and then being put in um in an unsafe <laughs> environment in that shelter um, so these are just some of the ways in which that social control is maintained and further, um, you know, further perpetuates violence against queer folks. And so um, I think, you know, going back to what Demian said, it's just like, just give us the money. <laughs> like, we know what to do with it. We've been practicing these different systems of caring for each other since time immemorial, we know what to do. Um, And so on some level there needs to be uh, a reckoning with, with that and with how the public um, interfaces with these nonprofits as extensions of, you know, the government and sometimes, you know, people, um, you know, private, private, you know, fiscal donors, uh, if you will, Um, because even in those situations, it seems unlikely that someone who has accumulated that much wealth to be able to uh, give it to other people would fully, and this isn't like a a catch-all statement but my assumption um, and my experience is that um, those folks don't totally wouldn't totally support some of uh, the things I would do with that money <laughs> um, truth be told um, and so it's just really something I think that people need to be really mindful of and how, you know, the evolution of a lot of these, um, you know, our, our mo- grassroots movements towards liberation end up being uh, co-opted. And then just creating more violence in our lives. Um, I have a question. Yeah, how gosh.
4: much of a role do you That's... think religion yeah. plays in policymaking?
2: Oh my gosh. Okay, so... <laughs> um, I mean, I think that in, I would say a huge role, I think. um, God, even just for example, like I was, so I, um, for my survival job, I work for the state of Arizona. And recently, um, you know, this isn't totally related to policy, but. in in an indirect way it is, uh, we went on a work retreat, and that retreat was held um, at a Mormon church, (laughs) and so here I am going like, wow, I guess that really went over your head, Um, you know, the history of extreme amounts of violence from Mormons towards indigenous people that still is happening today through the foster care system. I guess that went all the way over your head, especially, which is, like, so ironic because, you know, my experience in working for the state is they're so careful about everything because of, you know, auditing and this and that. Um, But there are several ways in which the state is very much, um, you know, not separated from religion and churches Another example I can give right off the top of my head is that, um, you know, we fund child care centers to improve, um, you know, various things like access to, like, age-appropriate supplies and resources in in child care centers. And one of the centers that we sponsor is um, the San Francisco de Assis uh, preschool and pre-K program where they pray, where they learn about, you know, God, and where they learn about, you know, um, not being a gay person and not committing suicide and, you know, all these like very overly religious themes to people who are four years old. <laughs> um, and that's that's not an isolated occurrence um, in my agency with the uh, with that San Francisco, the, the C-Center Here, that's true for, um, you know, other centers across the state, too. Um, And so, yeah, I I, I really think that the colonial legacy, which is inherently tied to um, oppressive religions, is absolutely played out in our, um, in the you know laws and, and, and law the people who are chosen to make those laws as well
1: yeah it's it's pretty gross in Gallup, the uh i believe the one of the head people uh who works at u n m Gallup uh got rid of the child care program at u n m which benefits you know a shit ton of like indigenous women. In the region, indigenous families in the region, um, and they just completely got rid of that funding. But he has ties to, you know, the the Mormon Church, um, who are you know coming in throughout the entire Southwest region, uh, trying to assume power over communities, uh, take over. Um, before that, it was you know primarily catholicism christianity that had you know a, a detrimental impact on the region so yeah a, a religion is right right up there it's the driving force of of colonization you know it's where the money came from um <laughs> Like you could think of the nonprofit industrial complex like uh, one of the boats coming across uh-huh. the uh, at the Atlantic. Um, present present day, you know that's uh, that's how money and missions and conquering happens in
0: communities.
3: Yeah, it's pretty gross. Not to get like too deep into it, but like. My partner and I have been doing mutual aid work since before the pandemic on our res. And um, during the beginning of the pandemic, our tribal business council tried to sue us for the work that we were doing mm-hmm. because we used the name Northern Arapahoe Tribe to like let people know like this is who they were supporting. And then whatever we talked through that, whatever. Um, there was also a church called Foundations for Nations, who's a mission group who had been doing, like, first-come, first-serve drive-through pickup, whatever the hell. And our business council decided to um, give them a piece of land on the res to support their work and their mission to essentially, you know, kill the native, save the man. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they just built their... They just finished building their church, and they are also going to have after-school programming, where the schools on the res are going to send their kids there for after-school activities and what they're calling programming. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, like, really weird, like, the whole child—I understand from, like, the whole child care thing, and also, like, mm-hmm. people feel like, oh, well, this is a safe place for our kids to go. Like, our kids are hungry and this and that and the other, and they feed them mm-hmm. and they tend to them. But, yeah, it's just, like, they know what they're doing, which is, like,
4: yeah, really gross. And that's, the reason I ask that is because that's the reason why I believe that um, since the religion has a strong base in policy and pretty much everything, I don't think that, you know, Mm -hmm. there won't be, I agree with you, there won't be a change in that direction. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember God, I mean, I grew up um, you know, like I said in various um forms of incarceration through the foster care system and it was very religiously oriented and even um, you know, the unfortunate You know, reality for my mom was that she was indoctrinated into my mom, who is indigenous, um, into Christianity. And so, I was raised like that um, when I did have, like, my parents in my life and then subsequently through incarceration. And I was so afraid to be who I was for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, because of those influences um, in my life. Um, I remember thinking that I was a very, very bad, bad person uh, because of being, you know, um, trans and because I am bisexual, too. Um, So even, I don't think I was, like, totally liberated from that mindset until... I don't know, maybe like eight years ago, and I'm 29. Um, well, you've, so, you've heard of the orphan train movement, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. The orphan
4: train movement—they were the, like the last of the indentured foster. That's what ushered in foster care, basically. Yeah, oh, so I've okay. been in over, over um, 25 different foster homes, and I mean, I have experienced multiple religions, and they all told me the same thing, that who mm-hmm. I am, being two-spirit, being queer, was wrong. Mm-hmm. So it was very hard trying to mm-hmm. um, exist, just just exist in uh, my humanness. Hmm. yeah. That's super. Well, it was incredible. started by that was it, Children's Aid Society. Uh, it was a charity where they were shipping these children on these orphan uh, trains and selling them on these farms uh, as uh, human trafficking. It's, nothing's changed. So doing basically uh, through foster care, but you know,
2: yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, my story is um, more so related to the border. The you know the border that crossed my homelands because we're situated um between you know so-called u.s. and so-called mexico and so through the use of you know immigration laws um we were separated from each other um and actually she's a missing woman um and so yeah um there's so many ways in which um You know, these colonial mechanisms of oppression have evolved themselves um, into just kind of recycling that same genocidal violence into a way that is, like, currently easily digestible by the mass majority of people. So, yeah, the foster care system is, like, a huge, huge um, factor, I think, in a lot of the conversation that we had today. Um, and, you know, I guess with that being said, like, um, I wonder, like, if we want to wrap up this conversation by offering some words to folks and listeners about how we can, you know, address the erasure of queers. In the movement I feel like that's a huge 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 task and it's a really hard question to answer and so if there's just like one or two um, you know things that we could do what would you say
1: uh, combat the homophobia transphobia like within yourself um, how you internalize it I mean as a queer person as a non-binary person like I also understand like ways that I perpetuated like my own self-hate and self-colonization um through indoctrination through um public school systems what I was you know taught told uh through you know I I went through communion and uh you know I was raised catholic um and so I realized that, you know, early on, like that was something that I, um, internalized and was taught, uh, coming out of that has, has taken years coming into like my non-binary identity. Mm-hmm. Like that didn't come to me until I was into my thirties, you know, for the most part, like my early teens or my late teens, like early twenties, you know, I very much ran and was like, uh, empowered and came through like my sexuality and my comfort with it through like lesbian dyke culture, dyke culture. And so um you know I always kind of like joke that I saw myself more as a dyke than as like a gay male
4: mm. when
1: I was younger. Um but it, what, it wasn't until like my 30s within the last few years that I realized um you know that I I had used my like a masculine um shell or armor as a way to survive as a mechanism to survive mm-hmm. when I needed to you know when um when I was very privileged in that way to um be able to take that on um but I also think that it came through like butch dyke culture um my like comfort and awareness of that um or even just like presenting that um I still to this day kind of like anyway whatever blah 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 so I think you know me coming into my identity and like me embracing like my um non-binary identity which I think will hopefully just like take me to the next like um evolution of like myself um you know I think I'm like in this like metamorphosis um transitory stage of like figuring out what the fuck is next um but a lot of that comes through like my own internalized shit and mm-hmm. i'm like a queer non-binary person you know i'm i'm not you know uh, a a cisgendered individual who is presuming all this shit on behalf of 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 that community you know mm-hmm. of of those communities um and so i think you know one one way is that one one way that they can do that is by understanding and realizing where that comes from um mm-hmm. confronting like their own homophobia and like transphobia um and then working with their community to create safer spaces for us um and sometimes that doesn't come through inclusion. Sometimes that comes through you just giving us, again, money, you giving us opportunities, you seeing that there's um, a group that is already doing the work and channeling all your resources and energy into helping them, um, not taking that, that labor on and trying to um, co-opt it or appropriate it. Um, but by you seeing and honoring and respecting the work that is happening and mm-hmm. choosing to, you know, be a, a person that, that uh, I don't know, fights, fights and does the, the, the work for justice.
2: Absolutely. I think one thing I would say for folks is to just fucking believe us. When we say that something is queerphobic, it's fucking queerphobic. And you need to sit with whatever it is that you said, whatever it is that you did, and correct your fucking mentality. Because I'm so sick of pointing out these different phobias that people have towards, I think specifically being non-binary for me, Um, and you just need to believe us when we say that something is violent towards us, and something that you said or did is perpetuating rape culture, something that you believe is misogynistic or sexist. I can't do this defensive, patriarchal bullshit anymore. It's that simple. I think you just need to believe us.
4: Um, the thing I would like to add is just quit adding gender to my actions, to my fashion choices, to who you think I am, and the way I should behave, and just let me exist, you know, let us exist in um, all that we are, so that I can give myself permission um, to find out who that is.
3: Tahoe, mm-hmm. I uh, thank you all for sharing. It's so true, and I just want to share a little bit about, like, my experience, like, pre-getting onto this call and, like, reading the questions and, like, just feeling so triggered in a way, like, being a part of these conversations previous and, like, not really feeling seen or heard. So I'm just like, uh, like, you know, like, how do I go about this? And I'm really glad that I was able to, like, land in this safe space. And yeah, I definitely feel like that's a big part of, like, what is going to, uh, be able to include, us in conversations is, um, giving us a safe place to tell our truths and also like, um, listening to and trusting the relatives who come to you and tell you that something doesn't feel right. Like you were saying, Bon. And yeah, I just Mm -hmm. believe that like our strength and our momentum comes from having these deeper conversations and like being able to unwind and like reweave with each other um in, like, these spaces and also, like, in our own communities and families. So, yeah, thank you so much for giving me the space to
2: exist. Yeah, ditto. Um, that's what I said at the beginning of this conversation. I was like, this feels like a little mini virtual paradise because <laughs> I really, like, I think where I'm situated, you know, physically and environmentally, like, I can't, I don't think I could have said any of the things that I said today in this podcast with um, people and, you know, in real life here in so-called Flagstaff, um, and they understood what I was talking about. It was just super frustrating, and I think, you know, ties in really well to the conversation of feeling like, you know, erased as a queer indigenous person. But anyway, um, thank you all. So, so, so much um, for, you know, making space in your very busy schedules to be here. I'm so glad that um, what I believe will, you know, this will probably likely be one of the only queer-centric um, you know, resources that people will have. <laughs> for um, the MMIWG2ST Day. Um, So this will air on May 5th, um, which is the day that we recognize um, all of the people that we lost to um, what truly is, you know, a long legacy of colonial oppression and violence. And so um, with that, again, thank you. um, And thank you for existing
1: yeah thank you thank you as well also even though like we just said all this shit and it was hard and it was difficult and it was um disgusting (laughs) and you know um disgusting in the sense that like you know it's 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 just hard it's just a hard conversation to have and um, I don't like thinking of humanity this way. Mm-hmm. I don't like thinking of indigenous communities and people who um, have been, like, devastated by colonialism in this way. But, you know, I I, I hope that people also walk away from this um, wanting to, like, celebrate the fact that, like, our communities like add so much like joy and complexity and beauty and harmony to the world um so i hope that we can also like celebrate that because we are we just bring so much fire and light and and laughter to the room um and so i i i want to remember that as well cuz even though we went really fucking deep like it would be really amazing to like um also be in like the physical space with one another and just have fun yes. dance tell jokes whatever you know because that's another part of like our identities that um create so much power
2: thank you uh, yes from the artists of very many um mediums and talents thank you for your beautiful words um to wrap up this show yeah Absolutely. I think it's so, it's so easy, I think, for me to just really go there when I have the chance to, (laughs) because like I said, I don't really have the opportunity to do this a lot. Um, But thank you so much for, you know, the reminder that, you know, we are the land and all its beauty and all its queerness. And so let's, you know let's just keep, um, you know, in in connection with that spirit and live our lives as beautifully as they are meant to be.
0: Get your war paint on and sharpen those claws because it's time for everyone's favorite segment, call-outs and shout-outs. All right, so we have reached that part of the podcast where we do shout-outs and call-outs from submissions by our listeners. So, of course, if you have anything to shout-out and highlight in the community, um, just the amazing things that are going on out there um, on the ground, or if you have something that needs to be um, called out so that we can continue to keep um, you know abusers and enablers out of our community and keep our communities more safe. Please uh, submit those announcements, and you can email us at iainfo at protonmail.com. So let's start out with our shout-outs for um, this podcast. So there is a really, really free market um, in Corvallis, Oregon, And that's a mutual aid effort where they focus on the holistic needs of the folks in the area with the idea that um, materials um, and material needs should not be commodified. So you can get anything there from clothing to food to electronics and really anything that you can think of uh, because those items are moved through the market um, by members of the community who help them organize. And so if you want to check out what they're doing, what they're up to, you can um, look at their Instagram at rrfm underscore corvallis dot And another shout out that we got today um, was submitted by named Kennedy, who also provided us uh, with a call out. So first we're going to um, give a shout out to of Their Walk, Um, Kennedy says that she's an amazing person, and that they're in awe of how strong and beautiful she is. She's a natural leader, and even in the face of adversity, she continues in her badassery. Um, That shout-out is absolutely appropriate for the strength that Tana um, showed us when she named and called out her rapist. And Kennedy provided, on behalf of Tana, a call-out. And so that call out is to Adam Sings in the Timber to Liz Hoover, as well as Nina Sanders. So Liz Hoover is being called out as a pretendian, a rape apologist, and an enabler. She's a professor at UC Berkeley in environmental science policy and management with a particular focus in um, indigeneity. And then Nina is another uh, rape apologist and enabler um, who's a curator-writer and uh, their art has been most recently affiliated with the University of Chicago, where um, she's a visiting fellow. So, Tina came out about um, her rape best, um, who is, again, Adam Sings in the Timber, and then she also called out these two other people, Nina and Liz for helping him hide his uh, violence and abuse, and then also giving um, him access to young Indigenous women. So there have been several young Indigenous women who have bravely came out and said that they've been abused and harassed by him. And so we just want to again thank Kennedy for sharing that on behalf of Tenna and keeping the community safe from harm, if you want to look at that public post that Tenna created um, to call out this abuse, you can um, check out her post and her other work at on Instagram at um, Crotian. I think that's how you say it. It's C-R-O-W-E-G-I-A-N. Another call out... Um, Came from Vandy Crane, and they are saying that a non-native event organizer named Chaitanya, I believe, in Taos, um, keeps inviting and giving a platform to a rapist who is using spiritual abuse to um, manipulate and coerce his victims. Um, his ch- he's he's a pedophile, um, so the. The girls have ranged from ages 13 to 16. His name is Keith Brown. He's also known as Red Eagle. And in 2019, members of the Indigenous Youth Council uh, met with Lakota elders because Red Eagle is from Pine Ridge, and based upon their um, recommendation and intervention, which I kind of wish was more, um, they made it very clear that Red is not to be a representative of the Lakota Nation or of Native communities at all, which was then communicated to this event organizer, Chaitanya. But Chaitanya still insists on inviting him to community events so he can be a liaison for Indigenous people with the Tribal Vision Organization, which, again, gives him access to very young girls. Um, so keep those shout-outs coming. Um, these ones are particularly relevant to the conversation that we had today. We need to do everything that we possibly can to end the cis-heteronormative patriarchy uh, that perpetuates the rape culture in which we live and normalizes this kind of behavior. And that also you know, sets up um, people here would think, would be our accomplices in the struggle to actually enable that behavior by these native men um, which is just horrifying and, um, so again if you would like to um, submit some shout outs call outs uh, please do so by emailing ianfo at protonmail.com
3: You can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at indigenousaction.org backslash podcast.
2: Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning churches, burning forts, or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go clause out on at iainfo at protonmail.com.